chapter 5, if you've got one. There's a, there, well, there isn't a Bible in the pew rack in front of you, but there are numerous websites that you can bring up on your phone if you didn't bring a Bible. Um, I'm going to read the first 11 verses. I'm reading out of the, the New International Version. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, but they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and hope, the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you were doing. Now, if you weren't here last week, where he says at the very end there, whether we are awake or asleep, you might be like, wait a second, didn't he just tell us in the verse, like right before that, to be awake? That doesn't make any sense. In the passage right before this, he talks about those who have died in Christ and refers to people who've already died and are out of this race, so to speak, as asleep. So when he says that, he means whether you're alive, like hopefully we're all right now, or whether you're already dead. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. Does that make sense? So asleep in that verse references further forward than immediately in this passage. Okay, so just that's not confusing for you. Um, one of the things that we already had a saying for, but not as many opportunities to experience is getting caught with your pants down. Um, it used to mean something different than it does now, um, but like pretty recently, um, this guy named Will Reeve was on Good Morning America talking about how medications could be delivered by drones to people who need them. And he didn't actually have a cameraman in his apartment, so he actually had set up the camera, and then he sat in front of it and wasn't wearing any pants. And because he didn't have somebody whose job it was to frame the picture, and he didn't have a reverse camera on his thing, which I do. Thank you, Ashlyn. Um, it was the whole nation who was watching was alerted to the fact that he was not wearing pants. And uh, some people say that his message was somewhat lost in the, uh, the fact that he caught his, got caught his pants down. Um, there, there are some things that if you're, you're just, if you're not prepared, you're going to get caught, and there's no way to fix it once it happens. But if you're always preparing for it, you're not only ready when the thing happens, but the preparation makes you ready for everything else. Does that make sense? When, um, what the Apostle Paul is trying to do, like he's writing to people who are really suffering. Now, whether or not you feel like right now you're really suffering with your little mask and whatever's happening in your life, some of you are probably really suffering and others of you are like, well, still first world problems for us. The Thessalonians were not suffering from first world problems. They, they were being, their, their good name was being destroyed. Some of them were losing their livelihood and occupations. Some of them were being terribly persecuted, including physical beatings and possibly even death. We don't know the extent of the persecution. They certainly were will, willing to kill Paul before he was sent away, right? So they're facing some very, very serious 
problems. And so in the passage we talked about last week, in this week, he talks about our understanding of death and resurrection, the resurrection in Christ, which was last week. And here he talks about this thing called the day of the Lord. But the larger point he's trying to make is that if we are in Christ, that is that through putting our trust in Christ, repenting of our sins, that is turning away from everything we know is out of the will of God, that which is not true, good, and beautiful in God's sight. Changing our minds, turning away from that, turning to Christ, and receiving in faith his forgiveness, his justification that we're counted righteous in him, the miracle of regeneration where he changes us from the inside out, gives us a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, to use the metaphor from the Old Testament, and where he gives us his Holy Spirit, right, to change and transform us, that that experience makes us alive in Christ. And what the Apostle Paul says is, if you understand the whole of the gospel and of salvation, it'll also make you awake in Christ. In some ways, it's not enough just to be alive in Christ. Man, you've got to be awake in Christ. Like, like the fact that Jesus has made you alive, it's not just as simple as like, well, I believed in Jesus, so now I'm, I'm right with God. And so now whatever happens, I'll be right with God. That'll be fantastic. It's probably great. So now I can be really uncareful about my whole life. Now I don't have to worry about anything. No, it's exactly false. Exactly false. No. Now that you turn to Christ and are in Christ, he wants to give you the mind of Christ so that you'll, you'll look at this, what's happening, the way Jesus looks at it. And so it'll wake you up from either a slumber or it'll bring you back to a sobriety from a kind of drunkenness in the way we naturally walk through our lives as human beings. Our flippancy and our blindness and our self-centeredness and all the things that cloud our vision that make us like we're in pitch black. And we think that's the way the world should be. And so we either sleep or drink and party rather than recognize what we're really in and so prepare for it. And what he's arguing is, is that when you are awake in Christ, what the result ends up being is that you understand that there's this thing coming called the day of the Lord. And seeing forward through time, this event that will, that will define your existence for eternity, it orders everything preceding it up to the present time, pushing back in your interpretation of your past life, back to your birth. And so therefore ordering all of your life and preparing you not just for that last day, but for everything preceding it. So that by preparing for the day of the Lord, by being awake and sober, right? It prepares you for every day. So that by looking forward to this thing called the day of the Lord, it doesn't make you so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. It doesn't make you so otherworldly that you don't have the guts to live concretely. It focuses you so much on the goodness and beauty of God that it makes you someone concerned with the goodness and beauty of God in the concrete real world that you live in, being committed to faith, hope, and therefore, in the deepest possible sense, sacrificial love. Right? The Christian argument is always, given our present lives, that we don't really become much earthly good until we become ultimately heavenly minded. And this passage is one of the passages that argues that. Now, I don't want to assume that if you're here in church or if you're listening online that you know what this thing called the day of the Lord is. Right? Um, the day of the Lord is mentioned in the passages on the slide in the New Testament and a number of times in the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is in the mouth of the prophets, and the day of the Lord is always the day of God's judgment. Like, God is—the way it works is this. God is patient for a period of time. He speaks and shows himself. He reveals himself to people both in creation and in conscience. 
naturally and then specially reveals himself through his words spoken through in the Old Testament, his prophets, and that he had already spoken in the Torah, that is the law. And so all those witnesses stand against mankind and they say, listen, you're not supposed to behave the way you're behaving. You're not supposed to believe the way you're believing. You're supposed to know that God is king, that he's created all things, that you should be thankful toward him, and that you should order your life as best as you understand to the highest good that you can possibly know in whatever situation you are. And if you don't do that, and if you don't care, it is not It is not inconsequential. It is highly consequential, and it is cosmically treasonous. Please turn around. Please turn around. Please turn around. Right? It is—there are constant signs to that. And then at some point, there is what is called the Day of the Lord, where God steps into time and space history, and he acts cataclysmically so as to display his righteous judgment, and so as to get the attention of the sinful humans that will survive it. Right? And then life goes on. He's like, now listen, now listen, now listen. And there's a number of these over the course of the history of the Old Testament, right? But in the New Testament, Jesus says that there is a specific singular and final day of the Lord, that all of those momentary judgments in temporal time and in the history of the world all pointed forward to something which was an ultimate and cataclysmic final day of the Lord, which points to the end of creation in the universe as we know it, and to a new heavens and a new earth in which, First Peter says, there will be a home of righteousness. Right. L- listen to this passage. This is, so, this is the day of the Lord as described in the book of Second Peter. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of the Lord. And speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. See the argument here? He's saying, already by the time of Peter, many Christians had already died, and some Christians had already assumed that Jesus was going to return like pretty, in pretty short order, in just maybe just a few years. They had no idea that he wouldn't come back for 2,000 years, or maybe, maybe we're in the first years of the early church. Maybe Jesus isn't going to come back for 200,000 more years. Who knows, right? That's why you've got to live today literally like the Christ is imminent. That today, if he came back, you would be ready morally and spiritually, but you, we invest as though he might not come back for 50,000 years. We get married. We have families. We invest in love. We build institutions that will help and honor and, and nurture people for generations whilst remembering that he could come back in 20 minutes, right? And a people who lives like that can do some good in the world as well as prepare themselves for eternity, right? Now, if you understand the day of the Lord in those terms, that 
however long it is, that's not an indication of Jesus not doing what he said, or that he's not going to come back, or this is all a myth, or we should just be secular people now, or so on. Peter already anticipated this objection in the first century, right? What's too long? Was 30 years too long? Is 2,000 years too long? Is 200,000 years too long? Well, the time period doesn't really matter. No no time period is promised in the Bible. The the word is often translated, Jesus is coming soon, but what it really means, eschaton, means more like next. Jesus is coming next. So in the periods of, of the different ways God relates to the earth, there was the Old Testament and the law and the, right? And then there was Christ, and then there was this period of the Spirit and the Word of God going out through the church that is the gospel being preached to all nations by the work of the Spirit to invite people to be made, to come into peace with God. And in that time period, God is being patient, seeking to lead as many as possible to salvation. That's why he's slow, right? But he says, but the end will come like a thief. It's not like a slow ramp up and then a slow ramp down, right? Okay, so there's a couple things to look at related to this. I just want to make two quick points. One is that when you think about the day of the Lord, you should be thinking more what than when. When you think about the day of the Lord, it's, it's about what, not when. So the apostle says, now brothers, about times and dates, we don't need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, right? Now the assumption is this. He doesn't say, we don't need to write to you because we already told you and you know all the dates, right? He says, no, it'll come like a thief in the night, right? Which, by definition, if the thief is successful, you didn't know he was coming right then. Does that make sense? Now, um, so there's two parts to this. One is the thief part, the other is the night part. The thing about Jesus coming like a thief, obviously both the thief metaphor and the pregnant woman's labor pains metaphor break down immediately after the first point. So these illustrations are not meant to be taken past the first and most immediate point that they make. Right, the, the, the issue with the thief in the night is this. You can live in peace and security in your home for innumerable days. And then that doesn't mean that tomorrow somebody isn't going to break in your house and steal everything. Right? It's not, it's not gradual. It's not like, well, you know, Jesus is like, he's kind of ramping things up right now. And then what he's going to do when he's returning, he's going to be like, hey, by the way, I'm like slowly returning. And then so for like a couple thousand years or something, he's going to like slowly return and you'll have plenty of time to get ready. The the metaphor here is, is that no matter how long it is preceding, the event of his return happens immediately, right? Like labor pains, right? You, you know they're coming. They're going to come, right? I mean, like, you've been pregnant for a while. But, like, it's, it's literally—it's 2020, right? It's two, 2020 now? Yeah. It's 2020. We still don't know when a woman's going to go into labor, right? And, and it's not like it hasn't been studied. Like, they have all these, like, cervix measurements and stuff like that, trying to figure out, like, they still can—they get it, like, generally within a week, like, 80% of the—like, they can't tell you when a woman's going to go into labor. They can send a woman into labor, but they can't tell you when a woman's going to go into labor. Like, even now, Right? It's amazing what we can do nowadays. Similarly, but once it happens, it happens. And once a woman goes into labor, if she's full term at least, there's no stopping it, right? Like you're going to have the baby whether you like it or not. And most women would just rather have the baby without having the baby. You know what I'm saying? And, but that's part of the metaphor, right? Like when, when you'd be walking around as a woman, you're pregnant, nine months pregnant, you're like having tea or whatever. Then all of a sudden you feel that first serious business contraction. And you're like, uh-oh. It's going to be a bad number of hours, right? Now, the metaphor breaks down because obviously at the end, hopefully you have a baby and you're happy and blah, blah, blah. And the metaphor here is, no, it's just bad. 
right? Similarly, when the thief comes, right, you, you could be accumulating stuff. He literally says, it, people will be sitting around raising their glasses in the living room like peace and security. Meanwhile, in the back den where the safe is, there's a guy dumping everything into a basket. And he's going to leave because he came at night when you were sleeping or when you were partying and you weren't ready for him and it's going to happen all at once. And so the important thing to recognize is if you aren't ready when this happens, you can't get ready then. That's a really important point. Christians of different denominations for years have come up with sort of counterfactual mental experiments about how maybe God somewhere has a way people can accept Jesus after their life or after he returns. Right? There, there are a couple Christian denominations out there that have catechisms that in, they, they basically say, you know, after people die, they'll have like a moment where they see their life in real perspective. And at that moment, God will give them a chance to repent and believe. Right? Or that there'll be some kind of, there'll be like a purgatory experience and, and you'll have who knows how long to sort of like learn what you didn't know and be purified from it and so on. And emotionally, I'm not against those things. Right? If I, if I die and, and I like awaken to the presence of like some angelic being and they're like, Nick, this is the like the place where you get a chance after. And um, so there are all kinds of idiocies, but you did believe in Jesus. So you're going to learn a bunch of stuff, but you're, you're fine. But for, for other people, this is where they get to do that thing. Right? I'll be like, Cool. I don't—I'm not against that. But Scripture basically teaches that's probably not the case. Like, banking on that is a really bad idea, right? Now, I'm softening that a lot. Do you understand? In Scripture, there is no hope of such a thing. You can—you can postulate the idea of it from the character of God and say, well, God is so loving and so caring that, that he pro- there are probably other things that he's done beyond what he's revealed in Scripture— Right? So maybe, maybe. But man, I would not, I would not count on it. Because God is also comfortable when right with judgment. When he believes it is right and proportionate and it has come at the right time and he's offered all the abeyances and all of the opportunities and all of the invitations and all of the flourishes and all of the hospitality and all of the not just minimal, but maximal promises. And if we do not care, right? Remember what Jesus says in Luke. When the rich man dies and he's being tormented in hell, and he says to Abraham, please send Lazarus, this beggar, back to tell my brothers that I'm tormented, that I'm in hell. Tell them, send Lazarus back from the dead to tell them I'm in hell so that they can repent and they can escape this flame. And Jesus says, that Ab- here's what Abraham says in that story. He says, Abraham said, listen, they have Moses and the prophets. If they will not believe the truth in them, they will not believe the truth even if somebody comes back from the dead. Like, we believe, we have so many stories we tell ourselves about when we would be honest. How much evidence would really turn us, right? Like, we believe that if, that if, like, there was some kind of big thing happened, we would, we would, we would turn and we would know God and we would be safe. Listen, I, I have, in my, the experience of my ministry, I have seen people miraculously healed from physical conditions that were destroying their lives, completely physically freed from them by the power of God in a moment, who have walked away from the Lord irreparably as far as I can tell. Like they they were literally healed by God, suffering for more than a decade, asking God to, to save them by healing their physical body. They felt his presence in their body. Their ailment entirely went away. They walked away free. And then a few years later, they just 
walked away from Jesus. And I've heard a number of people tell that exact same story. Don't, don't kid yourself about how honest you are. Right? You have Moses and the prophets. Actually, you have something infinitely better than Moses and the prophets. You have God incarnate, the man himself, inscripturated faithfully, offered to you beautifully in your language, in multiple translations throughout your life. It's word re-preached through capable people in innumerable pulpits, offered in a thousand medias with literally millions of good examples of people being transformed by the faith, albeit counter-evidences of people who have not. But listen, if you, if you won't believe, don't think that after death you're going to get a chance because Jesus said that you wouldn't have believed if somebody came back from the dead. Do you understand? This is the sort of event that comes like a thief in the night. There's all this slowness of the patience of God in preparation for it. But when the moment comes, the moment comes. And if you're not prepared, you can't at that time get prepared. Or you should hold little hope that you can. Right. He also says that it happens this way. People are caught by the thief because they're in the night. But he says, but those of you who believe are in the day and in the light, right? Because it's easy to think that Paul thinks Christians are special, right? Like, so everybody who's not a Christian can't see. They're in the darkness, and they're like asleep and drunk. And Christians are all like, you know, they're awake and so, right? Okay, first of all, the point of this passage is to tell you to do it, not absolutely assuming you are. Okay, so let's start there. Right? In, in, in a number of places in the Old Testament, in the day of the Lord, the, the prophet says to the people of Israel, oh, you think the day of the Lord is when God kills your enemies? <laughs> That's so cute. No, you're going to get destroyed. You think it's for them. No, it's for It's going to hit you because you're not his. You don't believe. You don't follow him. You don't obey him. You don't love him. And yet you think he's going to come and kill everybody else. That's not how this goes. Right? In certain cases in the Old Testament, the wrath of God came on the Israelites and not the neighboring peoples. Because the neighboring peoples didn't have the law and the prophets. And Israel did. Because a big part of accountability is how much information you have. Right? You can think about it this way. Um, some of you guys know I like elk hunting. And one of the reasons I love it is because I always come back in the dark. And the reason—one of the reasons I love it is because it's terrifying. Because I'm just not in the woods enough anymore to be comfortable with it. When I was, when I was younger, in my 20s, and I was a wilderness leader, like, I could see the dark, and I was young, and I was always in the woods. It didn't bother me, right? But it's still unnerving when you're like domesticated all year, and then you go out in the woods for a week, right? And especially when you—last time there were cougar tracks everywhere, and it, it was very interesting, right? But like if you took me and another person, you dumped us out in the woods, right? And I had a headlamp, and they didn't, right? You gave me a headlamp, but you didn't give them one. And I got back to camp, and they didn't. You wouldn't say, oh, that person's dumb. You would say, if I think if you were fair, that the illumination made the difference. Do you understand? And what, what the Apostle Paul is saying is he's saying the difference between the Christian and the not-Christian is that the Christian ought not be surprised by the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord is part of the gospel. Like if you're a Christian, you should know about the day of the Lord and everything related to salvation. So it shouldn't surprise you because you know it's coming. The difference is, the difference in the person who gets robbed and the person who doesn't get robbed is the person who didn't get robbed got told that the thief was coming and was able to illuminate things such that they could catch him or keep him from stealing stuff. It was the, it was the word. It was what they believed. It was what they knew with the message from the outside. That had nothing to do with them. It comes down to your willingness to receive it. 
right? And for those who've received it, you have the requisite information to be prepared, right? The message of the gospel is not just faith, that in repentance we can receive justification, experience the miracle of regeneration, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, be baptized into God's church, and to receive all those blessings that come immediately and through grace, through faith. And it's not just entering into the work and experience of love through sanctification, being transformed and having the mind of Christ, and walking in the will of God, and seeking godliness and to live it out in love towards our neighbor. But it's also hope. Well, what is the hope in? The hope is in the resurrection. Well, when does resurrection come? What is the resurrection part of? Well, it's part of this thing called the day of the Lord. That there is a specific cataclysmic future that Jesus has ordained and told us about, and that it's defining for us, and knowing that it's going to happen really radically changes our experience and how we prepare and how we live every single day. Right? It's what, not when. And if you understand the what, you don't need to know the when, because it will order you in your heart and in your mind and in your soul every single day. And it'll point you towards faith and love and hope. Second, and super quickly, since I've preached for a while, is everyone should live every day in vigilance. What's the, what's the application here? Right, the apostle says, so then, right, this is the application. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So the two things he says should be the result of being awake in Christ is a certain kind of alertness, right? Being alert to what's going on. One of the things that I think people really struggle with with Christian faith is that um, if you don't believe in any kind of faith at all, you still can believe things have meaning. There's still subjective meaning that you can believe in, Right? But the larger cataclysmic meaning that comes from there being a God and all of that isn't really there. And so sometimes people can struggle with insufficient amount of meaning to order their lives. One of the problems people have with Christian faith is that they feel like it's too much meaning. Like everything that you do is directly related to God and like whether or not you really believe. Like everything you do will show manifestly to everybody around you whether you really believe in the God who is there. Everything you do, you'll make a decision whether to love or not love. And, and everything that you do it is manifestly clear whether your life is ordered by hope in that last day or hope in something else to be your savior that is to make your life worthwhile and to get you what you want. Everything, everything, everything is directly related to God in those ways. And so what that means is that if you believe that, you're going to be a special kind of awake. It's like everything kind of glows with color in human life and everything has a significance. And it's—one of the things I struggle with is chronic sleepiness. And um, this has been true for most of my adult life. And so it was really hard for me to like get through college because a lot of the books I had to read were not particularly gripping. You know what I'm saying? And so it took a lot of sodas that I could drink in those days and nibbling on animal crackers. And like, it was, it was, I just, it was really hard to just stay awake. And this has been a struggle as a pastor in counseling because, you know, it's your first time telling me that story, but I've, you're a human. You're telling me a story I've heard literally like 10,000 times. You're wearing a different shirt. Like, that's the only difference. And so sometimes, like, I'll, I, like, drink tea or something when I'm doing counseling because it's just—it's—you're fascinating, but your story isn't new, right? And—but there have been moments in my life where I did not struggle to be awake at all, right? Like, 
there was some kind of real danger or something like very like life-threatening or very significant or life-changing was happening. In those moments, I've never struggled with chronic sleepiness, right? There is recognizing the importance of something changes the human level of alertness powerfully. And if you realize that the day of the Lord could be any day and your whole life is pointing towards it and that is what your life means and all of human being is wrapped up in that, it's really, it's really focusing, right? And then also sobriety, right? If, if you believe you're supposed to be awake and alert, you can't do anything that alters your state of consciousness so as to take away from your acuteness. Does that make sense? Now, you could—now, in your small groups, I would encourage you to, to apply that metaphor as broadly as possible. What is it that we indulge in, in our thinking, in our behavior, in our use of time, in what we do, that lessens or alters the acuteness of our state of consciousness towards what our lives really mean? You will find many examples. Okay. What that means is, is that when you get to the, the ap direct application of this, the apostle says— this. Like, what do you—what would you normally do at night? Well, you either—you either put on some heels for the party. I mean, I don't normally wear heels to parties, but like, that's the woman example. Or you would like put on your jammies, right? And the apostle goes, no, no, no. You need to put on your armor. Right? The thief is coming, right? Like, this is war. Like, you don't understand what you're doing, right? You, you don't, don't put on your heels or your whatever guys wear or your jammies. Like, like you're, it's not time to sleep, and it's not time to get drunk. It's time to be ready to fight. And so you need to put on faith and love like a breastplate, and you need to put on salvation like a helmet. I don't have time to go into that more now, but I did preach a whole sermon on the, um, on the armor of God in the book of Ephesians on December 15th, if you want to go back and look at that sermon. Remember, if we are awake in him— if we're alive in Christ, we have to be awake in Christ. The benefit of this is, is that anyone who is ready for the day of the Lord is ready for anything every day. Okay, let me just end with a quick story, thought experiment. Imagine you were in a, lived in a world where you were romantically unattached and where there was such a thing as a soulmate. That is not this world. In this world, somebody becomes your soulmate when you choose to unite your soul with them and actually love them in self-sacrificial love. You could marry any number of people and they can become your soulmate. Okay, so if you have that ridiculous notion of love, I hope you'll let it go. All right, so let's, but let's say there was such a world, and you had just one soulmate in the all of creation, and you hadn't met that person yet, right? And let's say also in that world, it wasn't assumed you would meet that person, and that all kinds of mistakes in that could happen. And in that world, I appeared to you as some like angelic or genie-like being, and it was like, okay, listen, I'm just here to tell you that pretty soon, you're going to meet your soulmate. Okay, and you're not going to recognize your soulmate until the fifth time you see them. Okay, and here's the thing about it. You will know when you see them that they're your soulmate, but they will not know that you are their soulmate. Okay, so you're going to have to like win them over. You'll know, but they won't know, right? And then I poof, I disappear in like purple mist, right? <laughs> well, well what, now what would you do, Right? Now, a lot of people would like, they'd get ready. Like, they'd, they'd be like, well, I'm going to meet my soulmate. Like, maybe it's next week. Maybe it's in a year. Who knows? But it's like, it could happen at any moment. And like, and they, and like, I don't want to be an idiot when they see me because I won't know they're them until the fifth time. So I don't, so like, people that like, 
if they believe that, if they believe that I was real, right, they, they might, they might like, they might shave or take a shower or like eat differently or go to the gym, right? They, or they would like, they would notice when they were in a bad temper and they'd be like, well, I don't, I don't know when I'm going to meet my soulmate. I need to get, I need to like work on my temper and not be irritable because like I, I might yell at some server in a restaurant and turns out that's going to be my soul bait and they're working on their PhD in astrophysics and making some money on the side. I mean, who knows? Right? You don't know. And so you would just, most people would like, they would change their lives because they don't know when it's going to happen. But here's the funny thing about that. What if I like, you found, you saw somebody and you were like, I think that's my soulmate. And you like went over and did stuff and you married and lived happily ever after. Okay, so great. And then I, I come back, I poof back in my purple mist and I go, so I just want to tell you, it was all kind of like a joke. Like it, it none of that was really true. I just, but what I knew is, is that if I told you that, you would change your life and you would be ready to meet somebody and find somebody and find love. But what I also knew is that you would be the kind of you that you were supposed to be and that you would be that person to a lot of people in your life, throughout your life, and that you would be different every single day. And that telling you that was going to happen was going to change all these things, right? Now, here's the thing. Um, I romantically think of my wife as my soulmate. Because she is. Because we have mingled all our souls in the creation of a human family, right? But make no mistake, I am not her soulmate. Jesus the Christ in eternity past determined that he would create my wife for himself for eternity as a divine image bearer and that she would enjoy his love and he would enjoy hers forever. And me too, right? He is my soulmate in the literal non-romantic sense. My soul was made for him and he made me for him and to the extent to which I prepare myself every day for that day when I will meet my soulmate, I will be what I must be every day at every moment. If I consider, like Peter says, consider knowing that and what you should be now. What should you be? But seeking to live holy and godly lives at peace with God, knowing that his patience leads to salvation. The idea of the coming of the day of the Lord is partly a warning to those who do not yet believe. Okay, if you're, if you are not a Christian, what scripture declares, repeating what Jesus himself taught, the resurrected king, is that the day is coming when in, a, in an immediate way, at a time where you will not be able to do any preparation after or during, the Lord will return and bring in an eternity where he will bring judgment and he will create a home of righteousness and he is calling and demanding that you respond to him now. So if you, if you aren't a believer, Jesus is inviting you in the patience of his waiting to respond to that message, to respond to it now. If you have not responded by letting go of everything you know is not in the will of God and turning to God, knowing that your soul was made for him and that you are meant to belong to him. You can do it by, by faith is how Christians say it. That is, you just— you say it towards him in your heart. It's great to speak it out loud, but you, there's a moment where you do it. Sometimes you have to do it like 15 to 700 times before it really takes. You know what I'm saying? You just, you just keep giving yourself to him. Now he'll take you the moment you really give yourself to him. 
that make sense? But all of life is repentance and faith, even after the first repentance and faith, right? It's an old Lutheran quote. But then, in addition to that, for those of us who are believers, right, the Apostle Paul doesn't say, you're automatically this when you believe in Jesus. If you're alive in Christ, you're going to be awakened. No, he says, listen, given that you are alive in Christ, strive graciously to be awake in Christ. Like, we're alive in Christ, but are we asleep or drunk in it? Are our perceptions all askew? Have we not really turned ourselves towards him perceptionally and with awakeness, recognizing what lives we ought to live, so ordered towards our real soulmate that we are the kind of soul we must be now to everybody in our lives so that by faith and hope we can love God and love our neighbors in a way that is not just sacrificial— doing what they need, but self-sacrificial, burning some of our own hopes to ashes for their good. Right? And in doing so, we can think of the day of the Lord as a great encouragement. Right? Remember how the passage ends? Encourage one another and build each other up as you're doing. The, the day of the Lord and the passage before this, the resurrection of the dead— are not to be held by Christians as primitive superstitions in the Christian faith that we should grow out of. They are the hope. There's nothing small-minded about them or primitive about them. There are many modern prejudices and bigotries against the promises of God. But there is nothing more sophisticated than a resurrected Christ. Nor the mind of God when we study the scriptures carefully. You and I should cherish the promise of the day of the Lord. We should turn to the Lord of that day so that we can be alive in him, and that we should hold it out in front of our eyes constantly and among each other so that we can be awake in him. Lord, um, we pray that you would take this passage and that you would help us to see its centrality to us. That the gospel doesn't stop with us for being forgiven nor in calling us to be changed to be like Jesus, to love you and to live in your will and to love our neighbor, but that it catapults beyond it in hope to a future world, the home of righteousness. And we pray, God, that you would help us to order our lives, not just towards who we want to be when we die or what our best self would be or what, what we want out of life. We know that all three of those things, the best of them will be ordered by th- thinking about that day. We'll be exactly who we need to be when we die. We'll, we'll know, we'll find out what our best self is supposed to be, and we'll know what we should really want. Help us to be a people who believe in the resurrection and your second return and the day of the Lord, and help it to make us beautiful in your eyes and good for the people who we live with in this earth. In Jesus' name.